Hi, thanks once again for joining me for Freedom is Scary. I believe it's episode 15. And obviously, I have to talk about today Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Or sometimes I keep mixing up the acronym from RBG to RGB, whatever. You know exactly who I'm talking about, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. There really have been two Supreme Court justices in, in my lifetime that have been at the polar opposites of conservative versus liberal or leftist ideals. And that's been Scalia on the right, who recently died as well. And then you have Ginsburg on the left. And more important than maybe anything specifically that they did during their careers as Supreme Court justices is just the fact that people have rallied around them and they've they've become they've been more of a uh, an ideal more than an actual person. And I think that's part of the reason why this has brought up such huge debate since the news was announced that um, Ginsburg had passed away. The first thing you know that popped in my head when I heard the news because they were reporting that the president didn't even know. He was asked live by a reporter about her death, and he was surprised. He didn't know. So the first thing that popped in my, into my head, which gives me um, kind of where I'm coming from, from the point of view that I'm going to tell you, is, now, wait a minute. How many times have I talked and ranted about the separation of powers doctrine and the fact that we have three branches of government, the executive, the legislative and the judicial. And is it not important that if we have a, a person who's involved in that government at such a high level as, as a Supreme Court justice, that nobody knows that this person was about to die? And we, all, we knew that she had cancer. But the president of the United States didn't even know that there's about to be a death by a high-level member of the government? It seems that the president at least should have known, but he didn't know. So that then begs the question in my mind, well, was she inc incapacitated for some period of time and we didn't know about it? I mean, certainly if it was the Speaker of the House or, or, uh, or, or the president or the vice president, we would have heard about it. But here we have a, it happening with Supreme Court justice, and we hear nothing. So I don't know. There's no requirement that that be the case. But that's just sort of the first thing that popped in, into my mind. So should she be replaced before the November election? That's the question. And as Kurt has already pointed out, I think that's right. He should have had his pick already. And he probably did have his pick, but he stated that he was going to wait until after the funeral. Now, remember, in my opinion anyways, and I believe this to be the case, that this is not Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat. This isn't her vacancy. It doesn't belong to her. This belongs to the people. And I'm not sure, looking at my stream here, this is really the first time that I've seen it sort of lagging for me. I'm not sure if it's if it's showing up normally for you or not. We I'm in West Virginia and we have um, absolutely primitive internet connections. 
So I have I, I buy every type of internet that I can possibly have here. Some days one works uh, fast and and the other day it doesn't work. And so I switch to the other one. Sometimes it works and then the other one doesn't work. But getting back to my point, it's not her seat. It's the people's seat. Um, and did you know, and if you've, if you've read what, what I've already written so far in the blurb for this video, there are three currently living retired Supreme Court justices, Sandra Day O'Connor, Anthony Kennedy, and David Souter. So that's three individuals who are still on this earth who had served their careers as, as uh, Supreme Court justices and then retired, as most people do from their careers, and live their last days, or they're still living their last days with their family or, or enjoying um, the COVID-19 retirement or whatever the case may be. But then there are those justices who are going to, they're just so hardcore that they're going to go to the very last breath. And, you know, certainly that was what Scalia did. And that's what um, Ginsburg has done. But it was her choice to do that. When you hear the commentators saying, how can they politicize her death? How can they, how can they make something like this and turn this into politics? Well, who made that choice? She could have retired at any time. She could have retired during Obama's term. She could have retired during Trump's term for in, in the last four years. But she, who chose not to do that? That was her choice, to politicize the vacancy that would be created by her death. Reportedly, her last words to her granddaughter were, my most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until until a new president is installed. And first of all, presidents are not installed in a democratic republic in, such as we have. That brings, that sounds more like a socialist country in Europe or maybe perhaps South America or a authoritarian dictatorship of some sort where you have presidents being installed. We have a president in this country that is elected. And secondly, what she really meant there is the successor to Trump. So she doesn't mean whoever won the election. She didn't say, wait, wait until after the election, if she said this. And then if Trump wins, let him pick my replacement. And if someone else wins, let them pick my replacement. That's not what she said. She's clearly making the statement that she wants anybody but Trump to pick her replacement. And what if the new president is still Trump? They're, they're just delaying. Well, well, we'll get to that because she, it, she, I don't believe she wanted to delay. She literally, she thought Hillary was going to win and she gambled wrong and Hillary didn't win. And so then she had to stay on the bench until hopefully after Trump was gone. So unless he was going to be a one-term president, she was going to have to make it another eight years. So she was at least trying to make it until after this election in the chance, in the slim chance, statistically, that he was going to be a one-term president. And that's what, what I'm going to talk about. But when it comes down to it, frankly, 
I see it as sad that in the last breath that this woman uttered, the last words that she would ever utter, who was on her mind but Trump? Not the granddaughter that she was supposedly talking to. Not the other three granddaughters that I guess she had. Or however many children she had. Or her husband. No, she had Trump on the mind at the very last second. Now, what does that tell you about the, the, the political agenda that she had at her position? And she's allowed to do so. But history will show that although the majority of Supreme Court justices have actually re retired rather than die on the bench, that was never going to happen to her, not unless Hillary won and not unless she could make it past this term and Biden won. The Constitution doesn't necessarily say that a Supreme Court justice stays on the bench until life. It doesn't say until, excuse me, until death. It doesn't say until death. Um, Bruce, uh, they weren't her last words. They were her last wish. Um, okay, I'm not sure what the difference is there, Bruce. I mean, it, your last words versus your last wish. I don't know. So are we talking about a minute, a difference of minutes, a difference, uh, a difference of hours? I mean, still, if it's her last wish that Trump lose and and the next guy um, appoint her replacement, you know, I don't know. And and how how lucid was she? Was she incapacitated for some period of time, or was she lucid until the till the very end? The fact that this information was kept from the president of the United States. I think it just illustrates how much she disliked Donald Trump. So what does the Constitution actually say? She said it several days before. Okay. So that's less sad, I think, in my opinion, if, 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 if that's the last thought on her mind. But still, several days before. It's not, I hope that I'm not thinking about politics or who my political opponents are, even in the last days of my life. That's just not what, what I would want to, to emphasize. But going back to the Constitution, what does the Constitution actually say? It says that judges, federal judges, who were to be appointed by the, or nominated by the president, and, and, uh, and uh, with the advice and consent of the Senate, so the Senate has to approve them, but they will serve during, it's quote, during good behavior. And that's the, the wording that's actually used in the Constitution. And then it goes on to say that their pay cannot be cut while in office. And that's to stop Congress or the president from threatening justices to retire, threatening to cut their pay, to get them to leave. So they're entitled to the pay that they have. It can't go down. Um, they, they get pensions and they get to stay during good behavior. And basically what that means is they they get to stay for as long as they want to until they retire or until they get impeached. And there have been impeachments before. I think uh, 15 judges have ever been impeached. Eight of those have been convicted and removed from office. 
so for for practical purposes, as long as you don't do something really bad, you get to stay in as long as you want. But the words that the Constitution actually says is so long as you have good behavior. So originally we had six Supreme Court justices because this, the Constitution itself didn't state how many were to have. They left the logistics of how to run the federal judiciary up to Congress. And from the very beginning, 1789, Congress set it up and they created the system of courts with the Supreme Court. And then you have the, the lower courts in the federal system. And they started with six justices. And then there, that was changed a couple of times. And now we have nine justices. And another thing that's come up in this argument is Democrats threatening that they're going to what's, do what's called packing the courts. They are going to increase the number of justices or they're saying, you know, once we have the ability to once we have the White House again, we're going and assuming we have Congress as well, we are going to increase the number of Supreme Court justices. And then we're going to uh, go ahead and nominate the rest of them. And there have been threats to do that before, and that would allow the Democrats or any other political party who's in power to, to create a majority on the Supreme Court just by increasing the number. And it's pure math. But there are problems with that. And actually, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was, was asked about this during her lifetime. I believe this was September of 2019. And she came out on the record as being against doing this, even if it were Democrats attempting to do so. And she pointed out that Franklin Delano Roosevelt um, had, was going to do this, had attempted to do it, or had intended to do it. And instead of nine justices, we would have had ended up with 15 very quickly on um, around you know, 1950. And that would have, who knows what that would have changed in 20th century America. So even as the most liberal leftist member of the Supreme Court, probably in history, it was her opinion that no president of any party should ever try to increase the number of Supreme Court justices from where it is now of nine. Let's see. I looked up some some science because I was interested in in well, what have other justices done? We know that O'Connor, Anthony, and Souter had all, and they came from different sides. They had all retired, and those were really the the recent ones, other than Scalia. But in history, I mean, we had we've had a lot of Supreme Court justices since 1789. You know. What have the majority done? Have they died in office or have they uh, resigned or, excuse me, retired? And there actually was a 2010 uh, article that I found on this, or I wouldn't say article. I think it was a paper, a scientific paper. They actually looked at all of the numbers. And I posted it on the website at thecivilrightslawyer.com. And it was pretty interesting. And it showed, it discussed this thing called the politicized departure hypothesis. 
So the politicized departure hypothesis basically means that whether or not a Supreme Court justice uh, retires or dies in the office is based on politics. It's a highly politicized process. So this is basically it, is number one, they observe that a justice's retirement, uh, particularly if it occurs early in a president's term of office, allows the incumbent president to nominate the replacement for that justice. Secondly, the belief that justices tend to be loyal to the party of the president who appointed them. And third, and that's not always true. And third, the conjecture that justices tend to display this loyalty by timing their resignations to give a president of that party the opportunity to appoint their judicial successor. So it's all kind of common sense, but they look at the numbers. So if the incumbent president is of the same party as the president who nominated the justice to the court, and if the incumbent president is in the first two years of a four-year presidential term, then the justice is more likely to resign from the court than at times when these two conditions are not met. So in other words, had Hillary won, then it was more likely that Ginsburg would have resigned. And that's sort of common sense. But since that condition was not met, it was more likely statistically that she would die in office, which is exactly what would happen. The statistics also showed, and again, they measured from 1789, I believe, or somewhere around 1800 through the through 2010 when the article was, was written. And you'll see a chart that the the tendency is now, as we get closer in time to 2010, or closer in time to present, that the tendency was leaning towards retirement rather than dying in office. And part of the reason that they discuss in the article is that because before they didn't necessarily have any guaranteed pension. Therefore, the in in older times, the the there may have been some other rational. Um, some some other rational uh, part of the equation in their mind that has to do with their own self-preservation or, or money for them to live off of. But that's not a consideration now. So in history, they've tended to retire rather than die in office. And it's been trending towards the retirement. And those who have chosen to stay into death tend to be the more politically oriented justices, such as RGB, RBJ, excuse me. The average period of time for a Supreme Court justice to serve in that position was found to have been about 25 years. Now, every as, as they get towards later in life, every year, every additional year of the average justice's life added a 6% chance per year of retirement. So those were the annual expected odds of retirement were 6% six, 6 additional per year of life. There was a Twitter post that I saw somewhere. I don't even know where I saw it. That was pretty interesting. I'll put it up. But it showed the length of time that it took for the confirmation of some of the past Supreme Court justices, because there have been people saying, well, it's been, you know, 30 days, 60. I mean, it's it, it takes it takes much longer to to nominate and and evaluate and confirm or not confirm a nominee to the Supreme Court. Well, that's not exactly true. This guy 
and I can't verify his numbers, but it, but I'm sure somebody would would call him out if they weren't right. Uh, John Paul Stevens was confirmed in 1975, and this is from Matt Doran on on Twitter. I'm not even sure who I got this from, but but it was making its rounds on social media. John Paul Stevens confirmed in 18 days. Warren Burger, if you've ever heard of the Burger Court, 19 days. That was 1969. Um, Abe Fortis, I believe that's Abe Fortis, 12 days in 1965. Byron White in 1962 it was confirmed in eight days. Uh, Whitaker, man, I don't even know who that is. 1957, 12 days. Clark, 12 days. That was 1949. Uh, Harold Burton, one day. Minton, 19 days. Vinson, 14 days. Burns, one day. Stone, 15 days. Again, those are all in the 40s. So it looks like from the 40, early 40s on up through the mid-70s, it really wasn't a thing that they were taking a long time to, to evaluate Supreme Court candidates in the Senate. So it's not unprecedented at all for this to be done within this time period. Let's see. So here's what the study found is that if the incumbent president is in the first two years of a four-year presidential term, then the justice has an odds of resigning that are about 2.6 times higher than when these two conditions are not met. So in other words, if 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 Donald Trump is in the first two years of his four-year presidential term, then the odds of any justice resigning are about 2.6 times higher than if he's not in the first two um, years of his four-year term. Um, by con to the contrary, when the incumbent president is of a different party than the president who has appointed the justice, then the justice's death in office odds are about tripled. So the incumbent president, Donald Trump, is of a different party than the president who appointed Ginsburg, who was Clinton, who was a Democrat. So therefore, the odds of Ginsburg dying in office were tripled. And that, you know, it seems obvious, but it, it hasn't just been with Ginsburg. That is the data from 1800 or so to present. And it is just prove, proven true in this particular case. The fact is that she had cancer for some period of time and had Hillary won in 2016. It seems rational to believe that she would have voluntarily retired sometime after November of 2016. And here's the trend. I had spoke about. So to the left of the chart, you have 1,800. To the right of the chart, you have 2,000. So you can see the, the top line is the trend for both retirement and death of Supreme Court justices. The, the dotted line is Supreme Court justices who have retired or ended their, their Supreme Court careers through death. You can see that it really was a popular thing to do through the mid-19th century. As you get to the early 1900s, it's getting less popular, and it, and it still is getting less popular as you get closer to 2000. So the trend has been away, and it, and it has to be just about 
I mean, if they're all either retirement or death, then they have to basically mirror each, mirror each other, do they not? So the other option is, is leaving the Supreme Court through retirement has been the exact opposite. And so it, it, it hit its low mark down around 1830 or so, and then it rose all the way through 1950s, and it gradually increased through the 1950s, and then it shot up again as you get towards 2010. So the trend has been for Supreme Court justices to retire. And it has been going away for um, from death and office for people who are on the Supreme Court. So that's what the data says. So in hindsight, excuse me, let me take a drink. In hindsight, tactically, she should have retired during Obama's second term. But I noticed that she had actually addressed this because frequently critics on her side after Trump got elected were calling her out for not doing this. And so she, she actually responded to that. I saw an, a CNBC article where this was September of 2019. Let's see. She said, these are her words. Just talk, talking about the, the argument that she should have retired during Obama's second term. This is, these are her words. When that suggestion is made, I asked the question, who do you think the president could nominate that could get through the Repu Republican Senate? Who, who, you would prefer, who would you prefer on the court than me? So, touche. That, that was her response, is that even if I did retire during Obama's second term, the Republicans held the Senate. So they would have ended up, you would have ended up with, um, you know, so she was taking a gamble. She was taking a gamble that if Hillary won the presidency, and especially if they could have taken the Senate, a true successor in her mind to her ideals could have replaced her. But she knew that that wouldn't, that wouldn't take place during the Obama years while there was a Republican Senate. So that was the that was the gamble that she made and it just shows that she was a diehard politico. And the data shows that she went against the grain in choosing to retire or choosing not to retire and instead gambled on attempting to outlive a Trump presidency. In fact, she had anti-Trump politics that were well-known. There are quotes that are out there um, from Ginsburg about Trump. This is what she said. He is a faker. He has no consistency about him. He says whatever comes into his head at the moment. He really has an ego. How has he gotten away with not turning over his tax returns? The press seems to be very gentle with him on that. She also said, I can't imagine what this place would be. I can't imagine what the country would be with Donald Trump as our president. For the country, it could be four years. For the court, it could be, I don't even want to contemplate that. So these were comments that she made in 2016, I believe in July of 2016. So these were not made criticizing Trump, the president. These were made criticizing Trump, the guy running for president. Think about that for a second. Now she apologized for that shortly afterwards, 
because she was criticized by a lot of people, even people on the left after she made those comments. And she came out and apologized publicly and said, on reflection, my recent remarks in response to press inquiries were ill-advised and I regret making them. Judges should avoid commenting on a candidate for public office. In the future, I will be more circumspect. And I would agree with that. She should not have made those comments. And Supreme Court justices, in my opinion, should not be commenting on any candidate for any side on a presidential election. And the reasons are obvious. And did you know this? She commented on other things as well. You know, since you may not have heard this in the media, and I never heard this in the media, or I don't remember hearing this in the media, but did you know that she criticized Colin Kaepernick? You didn't know that, did you? In a 2012 interview, not, no, I'm sorry, not 2012. When was it? Uh, anyways, I'll put a link up on the site to it. It was, it was, it must have been a more recent year than that. It probably was was uh, 2019 or 2018, whenever this was really going down with Colin Kaepernick. She criticized him publicly and called his kneeling slash protest, quote, dumb. And she later apologized for that, too. But she didn't go back on what she said. So here we have Colin Kaepernick, really the 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 darling of the same group of people with whom she is also the darling of that group. And here she says, basically, I don't agree with what this guy's doing. And in fact, she thought it was absolutely disrespectful to, to disrespect the flag. So she was a very opinionated woman and she had her own views on things and she wasn't afraid to say them. But you don't hear, I, I never heard that. You know, I, I, don't, I don't remember ever hearing that in the news. Here's another thing that she did comment on that I, I do recall hearing about. That was in 2012. She gave an interview with an Arabic television station. And in that interview, she publicly recommended to the Egyptians that they not follow the United States Constitution as a guide of how to set up their new government. And so we know that after this, uh, the Arab Spring, and uh, you know we had the new governments popping up in in Egypt and Libya and elsewhere in in the Middle East. We had this new government in in Egypt that they were going to form, and so there she's advising them not to look at the U.S. Constitution. And here she's somebody who's taken an oath to defend the United States Constitution. She's really a part of it. She's spending her career interpreting it. But when she's asked um, about it and to give guidance to the Egyptians, that's her recommendation is to don't even look at the U.S. Constitution. Instead, she said, look at Canada's Constitution or look at South Africa's Constitution. I've seen one of these social media fact check things where if you try to to share a meme or even any post about this, you'll get one of those pop-ups that say, this isn't exactly true. So I'll read you the actual quote from RBG on January 30th, 2012. She said this, you should certainly be aided by all the constitution writing that has gone on since the end of World War II. 
Now, our constitution was was uh, signed in seventeen eighty September seventeenth, seventeen eighty seven, as I recently did a video about. So now she's espousing the virtues of constitutions that are signed after the end of World War II, such as South Africa's. Okay, she said, I would not look to the U.S. Constitution if I were drafting a constitution in the year 2012. I might look at the Constitution of South Africa. That was a deliberate attempt to have a fundamental instrument of government that embraced basic human rights, had an independent judiciary. It really is, I think, a great piece of work that was done. Much more recently than the U.S. Constitution, Canada has the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, dates from 1982. You would almost certainly look at the European Convention on Human Rights. So yes, why not take advantage of what there is elsewhere in the world? So in her own words, you have a sitting United States Supreme Court justice who says that she prefers the South African Constitution or the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms neither of which, for example, include any real right for their people to bear arms like our constitution does, as a guide, as a model for a new government in Egypt. And ironically, where pretty much every, every family has an AK-47 by, by, uh, by necessity. So South Africa, really, South Africa is a hot mess. I mean, they have, under their system, a basically a socialistic system where the government owns like 700 plus businesses where everybody's scrambling. It's like one big swamp where everybody, from what I understand, where everybody's scrambling to get a government job because the government owns all these businesses. And you, we've all heard about what a disaster South Africa is as far as race relations goes. So I'm not sure what South Africa's constitution has over the U.S. constitution other than it was done after World War II. And let's look at it, Canada's charter, their Charter of Rights and Freedoms. If you read that, I mean, Google it and read it, it, it sounds like AOC's part, you know, platform. I mean... There's a, there, everybody has some sort of in, enforceable right based on their sex or the, the gender or, or some other minority status or victim group. I mean, it, it, it's AOC's platform basically turned into a constitution. I mean, it's pretty much the exact opposite of what our constitution and our Bill of Rights are. And here's the difference is because it's hard to, if you see yourself as a social justice warrior, it's hard to impose your agenda on the American people with the U.S. Constitution in place. Because it, it is a restriction. I mean, it's full of restrictions. It makes it very difficult. The genius of our Constitution is that it can be amended. So if there's something bad in it, it can be taken out. If something good needs to be put in it, it can be added. It can be amended. And we've done it many times, but it's not easy to do. In fact, it's so difficult to do, it takes broad, very broad public support to be able to amend the constitu our Constitution by design. 
So it's very difficult for, for a political party or some you know, political group who's in power at the time to impose a broad social justice type agenda on the, the country that doesn't have broad, overwhelming consensus style support from the people. That's how ours is designed. But other countries don't have those same, um, they don't, they don't have that same, that same protection of, of it being difficult for government to do, um, you know, to be proactive with their agenda. It's very, it, it was, it's been very difficult for the left to, to make changes. And that's why people love her is because she has participated in some of the you know, women's rights um, decisions that have come down. But, you know, that all has happened within the confines of our Constitution. So, you know, if if it's so bad, then how was she able to do what she did? The fact is, is the left is always pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. All right. So the question is not, let's see. Question is not whether the president should should nominate a new justice, because that's his job under the Constitution. That's what it says, right? The only question is whether the president should delay doing so. Um, let's see. Sorry, I missed a couple few comments here. Um, they South Africa also have a system where the government can appeal not guilty verdicts not in their favor. Yeah, that that I I just don't see any point in looking at South Africa as as an ideal. I mean, if her point is that if our founders knew what we know now, they could have written a better constitution. I can I can concede that point. I mean, that kind of goes without saying because they, they would have still the same concerns, the same interests. But that's not the same thing as saying, well, South Africa, we should look to South Africa's because it's it wasn't written 230 years ago. It was just written after World War II. Well, South, South Africa has nothing to do with, with us and the ideals of the founding fathers of America. And that's what it get, gets down to is a lot of a, a lot of politicians, a lot of judges, they don't respect our country and the founding ideals of our country. If they could change us into some sort of authoritarian regime, there are a lot of people who would do that. Now, I'm not saying that that was her opinion. But we have protections in place to stop us from becoming an authoritarian regime. Um, going back to where, where I was headed with this. So the, the issue is not should the president nominate a replacement because that's his constitutional duty to do so. And it's the Senate's constitutional duty to give advice and consent to whoever his nominee is. The issue is, is 
is should he delay? He's been at, he's at being asked to delay and to not do his job to give the next person a chance, assuming he loses, to do that. And what's the argument for that? The argument has been, well, it's the will, it should be the will of the people. It should be the will of the people. And I think somebody had commented, let's see, I think it was, yeah, Barbara. I don't know if I can pull this one up. Yeah, it's not on here, but I had I saw there was comments on there were there were a pile of comments before we we even we were still an hour or so from from going live on this. But I saw Barbara Sanders, I think it was on Facebook, commented, "You said it's the people's seat, not to be filled by a president on his way out very soon." And then there was a bunch of arguing over this comment, so I wanted to bring it up, um, Barbara. Here's my response to that: is that the people elected Trump in 2016. They also elected a Senate majority in Congress. The Constitution should be followed. So the question is whether you delay in order to make the president of the United States election basically a referendum on the Supreme Court of the United States. So let's look at that. In that case, if if we're going to call it a referendum and that we're, we're basically letting the people decide, Donald Trump has provided a list of who his people under consideration are. We all know that. That's an undisputed fact. We know who's on that list. Who has not provided a list? If the people are deciding, how can they make an informed decision? Has Joe Biden provided a list? No. He's been asked for a list, but he's not provided a list. Now, what's the reason that he hasn't given a list of his potential Supreme Court picks? Well, some people say because the people, the majority of us, aren't going to like who's on that list. For instance, I've heard that could be Stacey Abrams on that list. Now, what her qualifications are for Supreme Court justice, I don't know, other than just being a social justice warrior which goes towards, you know, the, the, the question again, you know, if, if maybe some of the questions for any nominee to, to the Supreme Court for those in the Senate or on the Judiciary Committee should be, you know, what do you think about the U.S. Constitution? If you were offered the opportunity to, to replace it with South Africa's, would you do so? Because that seems to be an important an important, you know, ideological idea that could hamper one's performance on the Supreme Court. I mean, if you're, if you believe, if your only goal or your agenda is to get rid of the U.S. Constitution or to see it replaced, then should you be on, you know, one of the nine individuals who are tasked, tasked with interpreting it according to what our founding fathers meant according to what our ideals laid out in the declaration of independence were. I think that's a, it's a really good question that probably never came up until 2012 when RBG was asked about what Egypt should do. Now, going back to where I was, Lindsey Graham you may have heard on the news already that Lindsey Graham had said back in 2016 or whenever it was that, what was it that he said specifically? Let me get it right. 
All right. He originally said, if if a vacancy occurs in the last year of a president's term, let's let the next president make the nomination. So that's been pointed out by people that, of course, he's still a senator. And that he's been asked, well, that you said that you're going to have to you're going to have to we're going to hold you to that. But Lindsey Graham has already come out and I'll show you some of his tweets. He's basically doubled down on proceeding with the nomination and the uh, approval in the Senate prior to the election. I'll show you his cheat, his uh, tweet from yesterday, where he said, being lectured by Democrats about how to handle judicial nominations is like an arsonist advising the fire department. So, and that's a good point. You reap what you sow. So, Look what they did to the last nominee for Supreme Court, Brett Kavanaugh. Look at what they did to that guy, Democrats. And now they're going to lecture Lindsey Graham or anyone else on, on uh, you know, waiting because it's the right thing to do. Now, these are the people that tried to destroy this man's life. And it almost begs the question, will there ever be a male Republican president nominee to the Supreme Court? How can there be? Look what they did to, to Brett Kavanaugh. Look what they've done to Clarence Thomas. I mean, the only logical way to avoid that ever again is to only consider females. Of course, the, a Democrat president could could nominate a a uh, male. I don't see the Republicans, the weak need Republicans, doing anything similar, and not that they should. But anyways, he tweeted again. Where's the second tweet? All right, so Lindsey Graham is doubling down. He's come out and he said that based on what the Democrats have done, even since he made that comment, that he is all for going forward. Let's see. Is that the same one? No, that's not the same one. So here we go. Here are the two things that they did that Graham pointed out. One is Harry Reid changed the rules to allow simple majority vote the circuit court nominees dealing out of the minority. And secondly, Chuck Schumer and his friends in the liberal media conspired to destroy the light, life of Brett Kavanaugh. So really, it, all bets are open after what happened to Kavanaugh. And not only that, but what did they do? You know, they're saying no Supreme Court nominee in an election year. But who was it that impeached a sitting president of the United States in an election year? I mean, they have thrown everything at him. I mean, they impeached the guy in an election year. And there were quotes to the effect of, well, we know we can't win in the Senate, but we're just going to impeach him because otherwise he's going to win the election. So given what they have did to Brett Kavanaugh and what they've done to this man, to this president, why would, why would you even give them the satisfaction of saying, okay, well, even though it's my constitutional duty, I'll wait and just see what happens with the election. 
even though we have no idea who the other guy would pick because he hasn't made that public. Um, other comments. Let's see. Kurt, Kurt Kastorf, I, I noted before that he said, the true miscarriage of justice would be having an even number of justices on the Supreme Court during a time when an election is likely to be contested. Kurt, I think that is a great, great point. When when will our Supreme Court perhaps ever be at or face such a constitutional crisis is who knows what they might face after this election now in November of 2020 with all the COVID-19 stuff, mail-in ballots. We don't know what the Supreme Court might face. We might have a constitutional crisis like no other. So what if Trump does not replace Ginsburg and we go into that with a eight-person court? Say we have a constitutional crisis where Biden is challenging the election results, or we can say Trump is challenging the election results, whatever the case may be. One of the sides isn't backing down. They make a legal challenge. It goes immediately to the Supreme Court. And we have a 4-4 decision. And we don't have the extra person to break that tie. Well, what happens? Do you have any idea what happens if you have just a 4-4 vote in the Supreme Court and there's no tiebreaker? What happens? Well, here's what happens. They have to reschedule to the next term in the hopes that they'll have a ninth member and a tiebreaker. So there's a catch-22 for you. They can't break a tie vote. They have to delay and wait until they have a new member. But here's the problem. They can't have a new member until they have a president to nominate somebody and for the Senate to confirm them. So if the issue is over who's president, how can, how can a Supreme Court justice be nominated? Therefore, I would make the, the argument under, under these circumstances, that it's absolutely imperative that Donald Trump nominate somebody before the election so that we have nine justices on the Supreme Court going into that election, especially in 2020, because you don't know what's going to happen in 2020. All right, another comment that, let's see, I noticed, this is from Marfcom from SKE714. And he had a good point. Another point is that the actual last wish was for her replacement to be appointed by Hillary Rodham Clinton, the first female president. That one didn't pan out either. The point being, it was all political. Now, this goes back to the, the, the fact that her last wishes were for the successor to Donald Trump to fill her vacancy. So his point is, is that her real last wishes was for Hillary to appoint her replacement. And that didn't pan out for her. So she had to switch to plan B. And that's a good point. It, it was, it, she clearly gambled and she lost. But too bad, the seat doesn't belong to her. It doesn't belong to her cult, cult following. It belongs to we the people, and we the people have to always default to the Constitution. 
Constitution says that the president gets to nominate a replacement. And I don't see any good arguments on why he should delay. If it physically cannot be done because there's not enough time, then it can't be done, whatever. But it can be done, clearly, because the Republicans are supposedly hold the Senate. That's the same political party, last time I checked, that the president has. And in that case, unlike the case with uh, Scalia's death, we could have a fast vote because the same political party is, is, on, is in, um, controls the entire process. So there's no logistic reason that it couldn't happen in time. There's a great reason that it should happen in time. Let's see. Mark Miller, plan B, don't die. That one didn't work either. Yeah, so really plan A was a failure. Plan B was a failure. In hindsight, yeah, she should have retired during Obama's term. Or she should have just retired anyways and enjoyed her last years with her family. But that was her decision. That was her right to make. All right, George, nominate a strong constitutional person with clean hands this week. If not, you're noted and write your name on the blackboard and chalk. Yeah, you know who I think she, he should, Trump should nominate? Now, he's not on the list, as far as I know. So, you know, I know it's, it's not going to happen. <clears throat> but my vote, if it were up to me, it would be Judge uh, Stickman the fourth out of the Western district of Pennsylvania an article three federal trial judge actually recently appointed by Trump. I don't know if it was 2018 um, or 2017, but he is the one who issued that decision last week or the week before striking down two of the unconstitutional mandates from the governor of Pennsylvania. And it was really a wonderful decision, a 66-page order that I've already put up on the website. And he's he's about my age, so he's about 40 years old. So if we're looking at the trend, well, if we're looking at what RBG did, and we're looking at what Scalia did, stay until death, though his death wasn't expected. He might have retired. But if we're looking at life expectancy, it's been usually 25 years. But if we were to... if you have to almost consider as president the age of the person you're putting on. Because, yeah, you want somebody who's qualified. You want somebody who's well-educated, who's a, 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 has, has, a uh, has a record. Now, he's not a law professor, or he was a law professor, but he was a trial lawyer. And, and uh, he just, you read the 66-page opinion, he would be a fabulous choice. He's extremely smart. I think he was a valedictorian of Duquesne University. And he is not afraid to do what he thinks is the right thing. So I would put up Judge Stickman. Now, whether or not he'd get through the Senate, I really don't know. But, you know, nobody's going to get through the Senate easily. I don't think it's going to be a fight no matter who you pick. So you might as well pick who you want to pick. I think that judge judge uh, judge Barrett is, is a good choice as well. And it looks like it's going to have to be a woman because I bet who knows judge Stickman probably wouldn't even take it because who knows what they do to him. 
So it looks like it, it might be Judge Barrett, um, or it might be you know one of the other females that they that judges that they've put forward, and any of them you know really would would be would be a good choice. The point is, and the reason why there's so much resistance to this is that this is going to break the tie vote for a lot of things. And what they're what they're scaring people with is with Roe versus Wade. That's how they're raising money right now. That's how, that's what they're, I think it was the Huffington Post just put a picture of a clothes hanger on their website either today or, to, or yesterday, which is ridiculous. They're implying to, to, to women that they're going to have to use clothes hangers for abortions after Trump gets to pick the replacement for our, our RBG. So they're really rolling out their political machine for this. So whomever he nominates is not going to have an easy time. Uh, infantry 10. I don't remember ever seeing this much tossed at any president. You know, I remember thinking during the Bush years that, that just being, I couldn't believe everything that they were throwing at him. And it was just frustrating that he would hardly fight back. I mean, he, he just took it and took it, and took it, and took it. And the, I think what they've, I don't think that was 10% of what they've thrown at Trump so far. And it's just bounced off him practically. I mean, it, the, I think the, the most amazing thing that I've seen so far is the fact that, that it hasn't even gotten to him. But yeah, this, I mean, don't doubt yourself. This is whatever they've saved for their nuclear options. Whoever has been carrying the, the, the left wing nuclear uh, suitcase ready to go off at any time, if they ever need to, this is probably it. Whoever this nominee is, you know, God bless them. You know, that it, it's certainly going to have to be a woman because there's not going to be, you'll have seen nothing yet with Kavanaugh. They're going to throw anything and everything at whoever this person is. And it's just sick. It's disgusting. I mean, who, who would even want the job to have to go through that? Uh, Jeremy, you think it should be our first female female president should be Candace Owens. Well, she's, she's got a little bit of, of way to go. She, she's got some time to go. And along those lines, here's the thing, because she's been out speaking about things. She's been arguing with, uh, with people. She's been engaging in dialogue. Unfortunately, in these days, that's going to, that's going to create so much ammunition to attack her with. And you look at the federal judgeships, I've looked at the questionnaires that they make these people fill out because I, I was looking into the background of, of Judge Stickman in particular because I just was interested in the guy after reading his decision, finding out that he really was only about a year older than I was. Talking about making you feel, uh, you know, um, like, like you, you could have done better in life. Um, I mean, here he is, a, a federal judge, just dropping bombs on, uh, you know, against the Pennsylvania governor. And, and just has a stellar record as, as a trial lawyer and a professor and, and as a student when he was a student. And, but, you know, looking at the, what he had to fill out to give to the Senate to get confirmed there was crazy. It's like they make you go back and produce anything you've ever written on the Internet. It's like, geez, okay. It's like everything you've ever written on Facebook, you're going to have to go look it up or Twitter. You're going to have to go look it up 
print it out and produce it to the Senate. So imagine what Candace Owens would have to produce. She'd have to produce every video that she's posted on Twitter and whatnot, which is absurd because what you're, what you're going to do is you, you're going to take all the people who should be doing jobs like that and you're going to disqualify them because you know they've said something that's offensive to somebody, no doubt. And then you're just going to leave the small group of people who've been hiding in a corner somewhere and it, and you're going to have some, something like John Roberts where no one really knows what the hell he thinks about anything. And on paper, yeah, he's got the credentials. He appears that he has, you know, the conservative values and then he gets appointed for life. And guess what? Well, you didn't know who the hell the guy was. And that's who we're leaving out there. It would be better for our, our Republic if, if, we were we were allowed to use known quantities who have you know back like the Lincoln and Douglas debates back when we used to have real debates that would go on for hours on end and they'd go to different cities and just debate like all day long that was how our country was designed because political dialogue is good but now everything has become so just acidic Let's see. So as far as before, before I, I close this thing, there have been some questions about some of the other cases that I'm working on. The mask challenge, somebody asked, is it still ongoing? Yes, uh, I filed a federal lawsuit here in West Virginia against the governor challenging the constitutionality of the so-called mask mandate here in West Virginia. Hopefully it's been served by now. I haven't gotten the, the confirmation. I have been contacted by a at least one lawyer for the other side. And uh, no extensions have been given at this point for, for responses. But we will be moving forward with that aggressively as far as uh, the case against the governor. And, you know, he's still doubling down here in West Virginia with some of his unconstitutional stupidity. As far as the, the other case I've, I've been asked about, the, the infamous, the now infamous family court judge search video. If you haven't seen that video on my YouTube channel, you might want to go look it up. And it's basically showing a family court judge searching this federal law enforcement officer's personal home over his objections. And he's told that, you know, they're going to, she's coming in and she's going to search it even without a warrant. He can be arrested if he tries to, if he tries to fight it or resist against it. And it really is a bizarre video. One of the most bizarre, of course, I've seen some things now, um, like that insurance company commercial, you know, I've been around, you know, and I've seen some things at this point, but this is, this is the only time I've seen this. And fortunately, um, the, he caught a lot of it on video until he was ordered to stop videoing. So I've said that there's going to be an update this week, and I believe that there is going to be an update this week, but I'm not going to throw it into the end of this video. You'll have to, you'll have to stay tuned, subscribe to the channel if you, if you want to, but there should be an update video here, maybe Wednesday. I don't know. could be Thursday. It could be tomorrow, but there will be an update on that case where there's going to be some news and I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be interesting news and, 
and um, I'll just leave it at that. Um, let's see, any other questions? Whatever happened to those cops that entered into the home that didn't have a search warrant? So that's that's just another one of my YouTube videos. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. I get asked about this one probably the most. Nothing has happened yet, really. And here's the thing. We, it just kind of blew my mind that here you have this video and no actual law enforcement entity did anything with it, including that department. Now, after the video came out, they approached me. This is Putnam County. The sheriff ordered an internal investigation and he approached me asking if we would share our, you know, my case files with them. If I would make my client, my witnesses available for them to interview. And I said, absolutely, I will. And so I drove to Charleston with my clients. I brought my, my laptop with the videos. I gave them copies of the original videos that I had posted on YouTube. I provided my clients for them to question. And we had a discussion at length in Starbucks, actually. And we answered every question that they had. Now, I, I don't know. Presumably, these guys, these were detectives. They did a report that went to the sheriff of that county. And this is this was an internal internal investigation. Of course, they're investigating themselves. I mean, I didn't have high hopes for it, but it's at least for their employment decisions. You know, are we going to fire these people? Are we going to suspend them? Are we going to discipline them? Are we going to do nothing? As far as I know, I, I haven't heard. I even sent them a FOIA request to request the results of their internal investigation. And it was denied, I believe, if I recall correctly, stating that they, you know, since this was an internal employment type thing. It wasn't a criminal investigation. So they didn't have to tell me the results. I've since found out that these guys are still out there. So, so uh, yeah, it hasn't gone away. All these law enforcement entities whose actual responsibility it is to investigate these types of things and to protect the people have completely failed. They, it's just me. It's just one guy. It's one guy with a, a, a law license and a YouTube channel chasing around some of these guys. But the good thing about the YouTube exposure was is that it brought hundreds and hundreds of, of calls with information to me. And I found other victims of the same group including including people who are victimized much worse than what happened to this guy on the video. In fact, I, I have one family I talked to. There's no, no video that, that you'll see, but I interviewed him in person and they were basically made to open the safe in their house at gunpoint where cash, a lot of cash and firearms were taken out of their safe. No search warrant, no inventory, no paper trail, nothing. And it's not going away. Um, I got a little sidetracked with having to sue the governor, basically. And I need to get back to it. And it's on my to-do list. So I'll, I'll be getting back to those soon. And um, I'm excited to do so. All right. Do you mean those felon criminals that broke into a home? I mean, you would think that... If you're in law enforcement in some capacity, I mean, 
and you have a video of of people breaking you know breaking into a house you know the rest of us you know us peasants we would be arrested for such things but this is exactly what destroys people's faith in the justice system and that's what what I've been harping on is is the fact that you know here's the real issue for the virtue signalers for WVU put this on your goddamn helmet what about this guy who had cops break into his window with no warrant pull his guns out of the closet photograph them then put his buddy's ashes through a drug test kit or what about the family that was sitting down at dinner one night and these officers bust in, no search warrant, and hold them at gunpoint, make them open their safe, take their life savings, take take their lawfully owned guns. Put that on your helmet. What about James Dean, a white guy who I watched take some of his last breaths in a hospital in Huntington, West Virginia? who had part of his skull crushed while his hands were handcuffed behind his back, dropped off at the hospital and abandoned, didn't even tell his family. Guy never even got to talk to his mother again. His mother, who had to watch a machine breathing for him and make the decision to pull the plug on him. Put that on your helmet. We have all sorts of problems that that are not... a a racist conspiracy of which there's no proof. We have problems with the fact that we've created a police state in the last 230 years with 5,000 plus criminal federal laws. And sometimes two, three, four, 5,000 more in each individual state. So many laws that no one lawyer, no one judge can even know them all. We've created a police state. We're concentrating on the wrong thing here. This should be something that that we can unite on. Is the is 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 that we don't want to live under a police state, and yet we're just doubling down. You know, all of this wear a mask stuff, all of these unconstitutional mask mandates. This is all part of the same thing. These governors, just like our governor, they control an entire usually the largest law enforcement entity in the state, you know, in our state, the West Virginia state police, you know, they are the police. That's why it's like, it was bizarre when, when our governor, you know, threw a, a couple of state troopers under the bus and, and put them up on TV and stating that he'd ordered, you know, investigations against them or ordered them to be fired or, or whatnot. Well, hell he's been their boss for how many years I've had how many lawsuits against the state police that he hasn't cared about. <clears throat> including black guys who were beaten by white officers. He never cared then. Why wasn't that on your helmets, WVU? I've had more than one uh, black client who was beaten by white police officers in West Virginia. You never put it on your helmet. You never cared. I've had white guys who were beaten. You never cared. Um, anyways, um, I'm getting, <laughs> I'm getting off on a tangent, but, uh, yeah, it, it's it's crazy that you have all these situations. But let me go back to this family court judge search video. Because so far, 
I don't know exactly what's been happening because they, they haven't told me anything. The authorities haven't told me anything, but I was impressed with the speed at which an investigation started after that family court judge search video was posted to YouTube. And I believe something will be happening here in the next few days that might reinstill some of, of my faith in the, the entire justice system. So we'll just have to, to wait and see. Now, regarding this whole um, Ginsburg thing, let me go back to the point. Just remember that there still are three living United States Supreme Court justices who retired, still alive, chose to retire. That's Sandra Day O'Connor, Anthony Kennedy, and David Souter came from both sides of the aisle. They chose to retire rather than the, to make the political choice to remain on the bench until death. And the majority throughout the history, history of our country, the majority of justices have chosen to retire like most of us do, rather than just work at their job until they die. The only exception to that and the only reason people have done that has been for politics. The trend has been going away from that, though, since the 1800s. And moreover, the nomination process throughout much of the 1900s was a 30 days or less type of deal. Some of them done in the same day. There's no requirement that it has to be drawn out. The only requirement in the Constitution is that the president nominates the replacement in the Senate will confirm them. That's it. So when in doubt, I think we should always follow the Constitution. If you want to read more about some of the statistics, some of the science that I quoted, you can check out the actual article, the written article that I did. And it's on thecivilrightslawyer.com. Um, that's right here, just like it sounds, thecivilrightslawyer.com. So again, thanks for listening to me talk about um, Ginsburg, about science, about YouTube videos, about ranting about the police. And um, I appreciate your questions, your comments, and uh, I appreciate your interest in uh, always discussing topics like this. But that's my point of view on this thing. And it will, will really be interesting to see what happens. And I, I, I don't envy the people involved at all, but it will be interesting politics. And I hope for the sake of our country that it all turns out well.